All right, welcome everyone. And thank you so much for being here. My name is Michael Fraud. I am the Assistant Program Director at Trisha. Uh, we're very excited to have everyone back for what is uh, sadly the, the last of our sessions together for this uh, this class on Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham Narrative with Rabbi Doug. the Dugan last Silver. one? I think next Sunday we meet, don't we? Oh, I, on the, on the calendar, I believe this is the last one, partially because next week is our pre-Pesach Yom Yun. Um, we'll have to double check but, that, because I thought the Yom Yun is afterwards, but okay. Okay. We'll double well, check uh, it. So, so either our last or our second to last. Um, but uh, in any case, uh, we're glad everyone's here to be continuing this, uh, this course. And uh, for those of you who are, who are interested in, in learning their will, as we said, be a, a pre-Pesach Yomi Yun going on uh, next Sunday as well. For those who want a little more learning, uh, we will have a class at 11.30 on adoption or resistance, the structure of the Seder and the Greco-Roman Symposium with Dr. Yer Furstenberg, as well as a session at 12.30 with Dr. Yadida Koren on remembering the Korban Pesach and Masach Pesachim and in ancient Jewish sources. And uh, after our Pesach break, Rabbi Silver will also be continuing to teach, uh, not specifically about Abraham, but we'll be moving on to a class called Alter Ego, Isaac, Abraham, and Sarah in the Biblical Narrative that will start up after Pesach. Um, how many but, sessions? Sorry? How many sessions? How many sessions is that going? I believe to? that's between, it's either five or six, I remember. Between Pesach and Shavuos, okay. up to up to Shavuot. Okay. Yes, it's it's current. Yeah, it's currently listed as as being five sessions, and yes, all of these, all of our uh, sessions for the remainder of the spring. Information, more information about them will be going out soon, but they're all going to be taking place between Pesach and Shavuot. So three to three to six sessions a piece, maybe maybe. Uh, yeah, I think this one's uh, Rabbi Silver's is going to be uh, five Sundays, same time slot. So feel free to. Uh, continue to mark that. Will Rabbi mind. Silver uh, uh, cover the Akedah in those sessions? Yes, or do. That to do That's the in plan. The, in the next uh, course, yeah, right? We'll get, okay. there now. we'll get there next. Look, as we continue, there's also something today at 12 o'clock. There's a Rappaport Memorial Lecture at 12 today. which is Yes, today at 12 o'clock, we have the Rappaport Memorial Lecture with Rabbi Alex Israel. Uh, the topic of that is from the Sea to Sinai. Tests of the Wilderness. Uh, we also have a few other pre-Pesach events coming up. On Tuesday, the 23rd of next week, we have an event called Seder Telling, also featuring Rabbi Silber, uh, an unscripted opportunity for four different storytellers and teachers from across the Jewish world to retell the Pesach Seder in their own terms and to bring us back to the pre-Haggadah practice of uh, reciting the story ourselves, unscripted, uh, as well as a Tanit Bechorotzium that we have with Ravanit Leah Sarna, our Associate Director of Education, on Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Eastern. Uh, she's gonna be making a Sium on her study of Masech Pesachim. Uh, so we have plenty of learning opportunities coming up between now and Pesach, in addition to the last sessions of this course and we hope that you will join us for those and you can get more information about all of those on our website 
at trisha.org slash classes. And with that, Rabbi Silver, I think we can go ahead and get started. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's just, well, where we are now, we're in chapter 19, and we're looking at the story of Lotz. And so far, we've focused on two elements of the Lotz story. One element is that Lot is a foil for Abraham. That is to say, similar in some respects, inviting guests is one example, um, hospitality. Um, but he also is different than Abraham and his hospitality is different. We have the story of Lot and his daughters, which is certainly not uh, approved by the uh, Torah and actually sets him off as a kind of Sodom member. So on one hand, he's Abraham-like, on the other hand, he's Sodom-like. And that's one literary function of Lot in the, in, in the, in the chapter and, and in general. Um, similar to Avram, unlike Avram. For example, when Avram goes down to Mitzrayim, which is parallel to Sodom, but Avram returns from Egypt. He comes back, in fact, in chapter 13, we are told, to the very same place from which he left. So Avram is able to make to, to return. The return is fraught with difficulties, as we know, because the past doesn't simply disappear. But he does come all the way back. And in fact, in the covenant of chapter 15, when God speaks of, first of all, the three generations of suffering, one of whose instances is in fact Mitzrayim, to which Avram and Sarah went. But then the Torah says, God says to Avraham in chapter 15, the fourth generation shall return to the land. And the interesting thing is that between the verses of the suffering, the three verses of suffering, in chapter 15, the three kinds of suffering, and then the, the fourth generation shall return to the land, the Torah breaks those two things, separates them by saying, by God saying to Abraham, that you will die in ripe old age. And then, so in other words, the same way you will uh, find yourself in this land, you'll be buried in the land in ripe old age, and the fourth generation shall return to the land, suggesting that the return of the fourth generation is somehow connected to Abraham himself. That is to say, the story of Abraham in chapters 12, 13, 14, which fundamentally are going to Mitzrayim, the suffering, which is borne by his wife primarily, and then the battle of the four kings against the five, the symbolic conquest of the land. That's the blueprint for the covenant in chapter 15, which entails both the suffering and in the Torah, in the book of Shemot, that's going down to Mitzrayim and also returning to the land, the fourth generation, which is not the generation that leaves Egypt because that's the third generation, they die in the desert, but the next generation begins to conquer the land in the Torah. That's the story of Sichon and Og, Melch Emori, Dorivi'i Yoshubu Heina, in short, Lot is a foil to Abraham, similar, but also other than Abraham. And we'll come back to this in a, in a little while. That's an important point. And then we made another point about Lot. Not only is he a foil for Abraham, but he also serves, he gives us a different perspective on the very story of Yitziat Mitzrayim. Because the same way the Torah says in chapter 19, that when God destroyed Sodom, that God remembered Abraham and saved Lot. 
That's in chapter 19. That's in verse number uh, 29. So it says that God remembered Abraham and delivered Lot from the destruction. And of course, in the book of Shemot, in chapter 2, God hears the cries ascending from Mitzrayim, just as God heard the cries ascending from Sodom in chapter 18. And there it says, God remembered, by at Abraham, at Yitzchak, at Yaakov, God remembered the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw and God knew. So there too, Israel is saved to some extent based on the covenantal connection to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and the covenant is spelled out in chapter 15 that we studied, and I pointed out last week that Lot is very similar to Israel and Egypt. One example would be that in the case of leaving Mitzrayim, Yitziat Mitzrayim, today's Rosh Chodesh Nisan, two weeks we have Pesach, believe it or not, hard to believe, but in any event, the Torah says that we, we, we made matzah, we didn't have bread when we left Egypt. Ki gorshubi Mitzrayim, for we were thrown out, we, was, we were kicked out of Egypt. We could not tarry, and we hadn't made no provision for ourselves. We couldn't tarry. What if we could have tarried? What if we weren't thrown out of Egypt? What would have happened? Who knows? Torah suggests that maybe we still be in Egypt. And the Torah says in that same one verse later, the Egyptians sort of overpowered us. Quickly expel us from the land to send us out of Egypt. They said, we're all going to die. So the Egyptians, they overpowered us, they threw us out, sent us away. We could not tarry. When it comes to Lot in our chapter, in chapter 19, the Torah says, Here we have both terms. Lot does tarry. And because he tarries, because he hesitates in leaving. So the angels, the two messengers, hold on to him. Take his hands, take him. His hands, the hands of his wife, his daughters, and they bring them out of Sodom. So Lot, therefore, similar to us, Lot is unable to go by himself. He probably doesn't get out. And the Malachim take him out, he, his wife, his daughters, and they place him outside the city. And then they instruct him to go to the mountain. That's in chapter 19. And they say to him, hurry, run away, run to the mountain. Run to the mountain lest you die. So Lord is directed to go to the mountain. Flee to the hills, you have here in verse number 17. Lord says, I can't do this. Oh no, my Lord. I can't go. I can't do it. Too difficult. I might die. Let me go to a nearby town, a little place, Mitzar, 
Imalta Nashama. Let me let me run there. Let me flee there. Hello, Mitzari. It's a little place. and I will survive. So he's directed to go to a place by God's messengers, but he doesn't go. And that's, of course, identical to what we have in the story of the Exodus. Because the purpose of the Exodus, as described in the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, chapter 3, God says, I go down to Mitzrayim to bring them up to a, to a good and broad land. At the end of the day, the people that leave Mitzrayim don't get there. They don't get there basically because they're connected to Mitzrayim. As they say in the story of these spies, let's go back to Egypt. As they say a couple of chapters earlier in Bamidbar, we remember the fish and the watermelons and the cucumbers that we got from free in, in Mitzrayim. So the, being connected to Mitzrayim makes it impossible to make that leap of faith. And of course, it's precisely the opposite of, 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 of uh, Abraham. Because Abraham, one of the marks of Abraham is the lechlecha, is the ability to leave where he is and follows God directive. And that's what Lot cannot do. So Lot then has two literary functions, one of which is locally in terms of Sefer Breshit, a foil to Abraham. It sharpens the distinctions between Abraham and Lot, as well as the commonalities. And of course, Lot is very useful for us in terms of seeing the story of Mitzrayim and that we spoke about last week in terms of the house, which is the central motif in Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Korban Pesach, the Bayit, the Beit Avot. And of course, in the case of Lot uh, as well, it's the house, which marks him off from the other people of Sodom and which serves as a place of, uh, of, uh, of, of salvation for Lot. It's what saves Lot, etc. I'm not going to go over all the other parallels between Sodom and Mitzrayim at this point, but there are many, many parallels. Actually, in my Haggadah, I have a chapter on that, and I write some, I have many more of them there in that, in that chapter. But I did want to come back to these themes. We haven't finished the chapter and pick up on a comment someone made at the end of last week's year, and I had intended to speak about this, uh, and that is, um, the um, verse, the Pasuk uh, number 16, when Lot delays, Vayitma um, Ma'ama, Vayitma Ma'ama, and Vayachaziku they take him and Vayanichuhu. They place him. Here they translate, they left him. They place him. And someone commented last week, and I said, we'll deal with it this week. That's the first thing we will deal with this week, is the idea of They placed him outside the city, because points us in a very interesting direction, which is the parallel between Lot on one hand and Noah on the other. The Torah, in fact, we're not studying the story of Noah now, but the Torah in the story of Noah plays with the name Noah in many ways. But one of them is the word Le'ahaniach. There are actually several plays on the word Noah. Um, 
And one of them is Vatanach Hateva, Vatanach, Vatanach. The, the ark rests. When the ark rests, it's safe for Noah to leave the ark and to re-inhabit the world or to be part of a new world, the world of Noah, our world. So this word over here, Vayanichu Michutz Vayir, gives us an opportunity to think about Lot and Noah and the parallels and contrast between them. Vayanichu is just a word, not gonna build a case on one word. But however, it does get us to think about the parallels. And when you think about it, you realize there are many important parallels and distinctions between the two stories. So let's start with the obvious parallels between the two stories. The story of Noah is a story about the destruction of the world. The entire world is destroyed, but God singles out Noah in chapter six because the Torah says he's a Noah is tzaddik, tamim ayabedorotav, et Elohim etalech Noah. There are three different terms used for Noah. He's a tzaddik, he's tamim, and he is uh, he walks with God. So, and God says to Noah in that very chapter in Parshat Noah, build your ark. Ki otchara, I'm going to destroy the world, says God. Otchara iti tzaddik lefanai, right? You are a tzaddik. You and perhaps only you are innocent, a tzaddik, innocent. So I'm going to save you. Not only does God save Noah, but the Torah says God instructs Noah to save other members of his family. That is his wife, his three children, and his three daughters-in-law. Neshei b'nei Noah is saved. That's a grand total of what, eight, right? Two and six is eight. So there are eight, eight members. So Noah saves not only himself, but Noah is able to save his family. Can't save the world, but God has condemned the world, but Noah saves his family. And of course he brings the animals on board. They're gonna start a uh, new world. Noah perhaps can be seen as a bridge between the old world and the new world. That's the story of Noah. The story of Sodom and the adjoining cities is similar in the respect that God will destroy these cities. In fact, the word hashchit is a term that's used for in both stories. God will destroy these cities. And actually it's very interesting that in chapter 19, when you get towards the end of the chapter, and I hope we can deal with this today, get to it. We're told that after Lot leaves Sodom, was taken out of Sodom and goes to a little city. And then Lot is afraid to stay even there. That's in verse number, 30, Vayal Lot meets Tzohar. Lot leaves Tzohar together with his two daughters. His wife has died, we'll get back to the wife, but, but, but uh, he's afraid. And he goes into a cave. And then we have the story of Lot's daughters, the end of chapter 19. The, Lot, the older one says to the younger one, says, Avinu zakein, ve'ish ein ba'aretz chavro oleinu so the one daughter says to the other, our father's old and there's no men. They, in other words, they, they are assuming that their world, if not the world, but their world has been totally destroyed. And they're concerned about the preservation of, of, of their world, gonna get their father drunk and they're gonna sleep with their father. Before we get to getting him drunk and sleeping with him, but we have here a, a similar story, in fact, 
from their perspective, their world is utterly destroyed. They are the sole survivors of, of their world. And they want the world to be continued. And the only man who can help them continue this is their father. Now, whether the text condemns them for this or not is a very good question. But let's leave that for now. But the first point is that the Torah sets up the two stories as a kind of parallel stories. And when you think about it from this perspective, there's something very interesting about the parallel. Because the parallel is not just that it's a story of utter destruction and sole survivors, but it's actually a story about what happens after the destruction. So in the case of Lot, we know what happens. It's, he gets, he's given drink, and the Torah says that in fact they give him drink so the first night the older daughter sleeps with her father and then the second night they give him drink again later on in the chapter and the end of the chapter that's verse number uh, 35 Lot doesn't know in, in either case, it says he doesn't know about her lying down or getting up. And the two daughters uh, get pregnant and they give birth. The oldest one gives birth and names, uh, and names him uh, uh, Moab, means from father. Uh, so he's the, he's the, he's the, that's the, that's the, the land, the people of Moab. And the second daughter gives birth and she gives birth to Ben-Ami, that's Amon. This is Amon and Moab. So, so Lot is the father, perhaps unbeknownst to himself, but he is the progenitor of the two nations of Amon and Moab, Israel's cousins. What's interesting is, this is the story of Lot. We'll come back to Lot, but let's think about Noah. What happens to Noah after he has lived through the destruction of the world? So then we have the story of uh, Noah that's found in, where is that? Chapter nine? No, not chapter, is it chapter nine? Let's see, yes, chapter nine, verse 20. Vayachel Noah ish hadaba, vayita karem. Chapter nine, Genesis chapter nine, verse 20. Noah, vayachel Noah. Noah was the first, vayachel began, he was the uh, tiller of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, a yita karem. Right? Verse number uh, 20. Verse 21, vayeshmin He drank from the wine and became drunk. Vayitgal betoch He uncovered himself in, in, in his tent. And then we have the next verse, verse 22, which is hard to know what it means. But it says, Chum is one of his sons of Noah. He has three sons. And the Torah says, the father of Canaan literally saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers. We don't know what it means he saw his father's nakedness because he simply saw his father. Or does it mean more than that? We have to remember that in the Chumash, when it discusses the, the illicit relations, um, 
it uses a euphemism to see nakedness. Right? Or we got erva, or we're out erva. So we're out erva in the chumish doesn't mean to see. It's a euphemism for some sexual act. And that's how the rabbinic tradition understood this. He did something to his father, slept with his father, castrated his father, something, some, some, some illicit, from the Torah's perspective, certainly illicit sexual act. He informs his brothers and the brothers, the two brothers, Shem and Yefet come and they cover up their father. They don't see their father's nakedness. Here probably means literally don't see it, but they also cover their father up. Fine. So we have over here in the story, let's, let's leave this text for a second, but, but leave where it is. So we have a very striking parallel. We have two people that live through the destruction. And what happens after the destruction is uh, getting drunk. In the case of Noah, it's not clear. Does he intentionally get drunk? Was he experimenting with wine that he doesn't know? In the case of Lot, he's made drunk. And then there's some kind of sexual act, which under ordinary circumstances from the Torah's perspective is highly problematic. Something. In the case of Noah, the Torah doesn't tell us explicitly what it is. It certainly hints at something. In the case of Lot, it tells us very much what it is. It's daughters sleeping with their father, or might say the ultimate forbidden relationship, even though it is striking that in the Chumash, I don't want to get into this now, when the Chumash lists off all of the forbidden relationships, it never mentions father and daughter. It mentions father and granddaughter. It's interesting. It mentions others. It would be what we say, Kabachomer, but it doesn't say that explicitly, so there's a whole discussion about that, but it certainly is, is seen as primary, a primary forbidden relationship. So that's very interesting. Let me say you live through a destruction, you live through a Holocaust. And then what is your response to that? And in the case of Noah, for example, the Torah doesn't psychoanalyze its characters, but we could explain it in a couple of different ways about the getting drunk and these forbidden sexual relationships. We could understand it as a response to utter destruction see everything destroyed, utter despair, and what is, you know, can get incredible depression, could be that, or it could be something else, which is, and the story of Noah, prior to um, the story of Noah's drunkenness, in chapter nine, God instructs Noah about governing the world, what the Talmud called the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noah, Shofech Dam HaAdam Ba'adam Damai Shofech, which means God says to Noah, from this point on, you are responsible for the world and the weight of the responsibility. This awesome responsibility to be in charge of the world. That can lead one towards a uh, kind of sense of hopelessness. The task is beyond my capabilities. So there are any, a couple of interesting ways to understand it. But what is common to both stories is very striking. You have the drunkenness, and you have the sexual, let's call it illicit sexual encounter for our purposes. And both of them involve children. In the first instance, it's his son, although the curse is for Canaan, but the plain reading of the text is that it's Ham. And in the second instance, it's Lot's, it's Lot's daughters.
So we have the parallel between the two stories. And now the question is, is there a distinction between the two stories? And of course there are distinctions between them. But I wanted to mention one particular distinction between the two stories. If you read further in the, in the Noah story in chapter nine, if you scroll down, this is verse number 23. Now what happens in verse number 24? It says, Noah woke up, he knew that which his youngest son had done to him. First of all, when you say done to him, it sounds like it's more than just seeing. Say so he, he did something to him. So this would support the idea that it doesn't mean just to see, it means something else. But he knows. And he said, cursed is Canaan. Eved avodim, he should be a slave to his brethren. Vayomer, baruch Hashem Hashem. He Canaan eved lamo. These are very, very important verses for the Torah, for the storyline of the Torah. Because what Noah does is he blesses and he curses. He blesses shame. He curses Canaan. And he says that shame shall subjugate Canaan. When we started studying Rechacha, I made the point that God is sending Abraham to the land of Canaan, the land that I will show you, right? Um, is exactly a fulfillment of the blessing and the curse of, of Noah. Shame shall subdue Canaan, and the Torah traces out the lineage from shame to Abraham in chapter, in chapter 11. When you get to Avram, God says, okay, go to the place that I will show you. I even wonder if I will show you over there, as opposed to tell you, isn't playing off the very sin of, of Ham. So the point is seeing seems to be primary. They don't see the other two brothers he sees, but Avram is a fulfillment of the blessing and the curse of Noah. And I wanted to just for a moment reflect on the blessing and the curse of Noah. And I'll tell you a little story about this too. So Noah wakes up, it says, Vayeda, and he knows. And he doesn't just know, but he acts upon his knowledge. He blesses and he curses. Now, the point being the following, that blessing and cursing up to this point in the Chumash is God's province. That's how God runs the world. God, the first chapter of the Torah, God blesses the fish, God blesses the birds, God blesses the human being. right? God blesses the Shabbat. The capstone of creation is blessed. right? So God is blessing. When it comes to Adam and then to Cain, God curses, right? says God. God said to Adam, after they ate of the forbidden fruit, the earth is cursed on account of you. And then when it comes to Cain and Abel in the story, right? Right, there's another curse. There's another curse. So the way God is governing God's creations is blessing and cursing. When Noah comes out of the ark in chapter nine, God said in chapter nine, God said to Noah, you're responsible for the world. 
Shofech Dam Adam, you have more rights in the world now? You're responsible. You're the person who actually caused the world to exist. Because of you, the world exists. It gives you all kinds of rights, but it also gives you responsibilities. Shofech Dam Adam, you have to govern the world. And the Gemara in Sanhedrin expands upon this idea of governance. And now what Noah is doing when he wakes up, Vayeda, he knows, and he actually plays God. Because what does Noah do? The first thing he does is he blesses and he curses. He makes distinctions between the world is filled with all kinds of people, says Noah. The world from which I, place which I came from was wholly evil. God destroyed it. I was the sole survivor. I was the sole tzaddik. But the world that I inhabit, says Noah, is not a world of total good or total evil. Uh, certainly not total good. And the fact is, he, he, he accepts his role over here by blessing and by cursing. He's saying, I accept my role. He wakes up, okay, he was drunk, whatever, but now he knows, Vayeda. Now we turn to our chapter, chapter 19. At the end of the chapter, we have the story of Lot's daughters. So if you back it up a little to verse number 33 it is, let's see. Um, right, so it says, Vatashkene et avien lailo balailo hu, vatavo ha-bechira vatishkavet aviha, v'lo yada b'shechva u'bekuma. He did not know when she lay down and when she rose. He did not know. The Torah emphasizes v'lo yada. That's the first daughter. And the older daughter says to the youngest, I slept with them last night, your turn tonight. And then in verse 35, he did not know. And this is the last we hear of Lot. We never hear of Lot again in the Torah. So the last thing we know about Lot is Lot's unknowing. And when you don't know, okay, the point about when you don't know, you have no opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to make it right. It remains from the standpoint of Lot, a kind of perverse act. From the standpoint of the daughters, we can defend what they do. We can say it's a kind of levered marriage because every levered marriage is actually a forbidden relationship. Sister-in-laws are forbidden in the Torah. They're on the list of forbidden relationships. But under certain conditions to preserve the name of the deceased brother, the Torah now only permits it, but actually instructs the, bro the brother to take his brother's, deceased brother's wife. So from the standpoint of the two women over here, one could defend their action. But from the standpoint of Lot, to make this act a pure act, you require all parties to, to, to be aware of and to consent to, or minimally to be aware of, if not to consent at the time, but at least in retrospect to consent. So here we have a distinction between Noah, the parallels are clear. But the interesting thing is the distinctions between the two. Let me make two points and I'll stop the comments. And that is just something to think about here. About, it's about the complexity of these, of these texts. Because we have to remember something. I'll simply put it out there now. I'm not going to discuss it at this point. But we know that Lot is a foil to, to, uh, to Abraham that we saw last week, two weeks ago. He's similar to Avraham. He's different than Avraham. That's true. Avraham has another foil in Sefer Breshit, someone who's more similar to Avraham than Lot, but he's not Avraham either. 
And that, of course, is Noah. Noah is an East Tzadik Tamim. He walks with God. And God commanded Abraham in chapter 17, Walk with me, right? Walk before me and be, and be Tamim. So we have exactly those two similar, almost identical, not identical descriptions of Abraham and Lot. Each one has a covenant. Lot has a covenant of the rainbow, covenant that humanity will be, will never be destroyed by God again, or wholly destroyed. Avram has the covenant of the pieces, the brief inhabitarian, possession of a particular sacred space. One might say that Noah, and we've talked about this in the past, Noah's covenant has to do with the creation episode of chapter one of the Torah. God creates everything. God destroys it all and God recreates it. And Noah is the one who the main person who's involved in the recreation of the world. Torah speaks, God speaks to Noah of Tzelem Elohim, being God's image. Right? Elohim is chapter one of Genesis. It's God's description of the human being, of humanity in chapter one. Avram is different. Avram's not so much about recreating the world. Noah has done that. Avram's about a particular sacred space in the world, the land of Canaan, place of the temple, Haram Moriah. That's Avram. There are differences between Noah and Abraham, however, that are interesting. For example, Noah never prays for anybody. Now, maybe he wasn't invited to, but, in, but de facto, he never prays. He doesn't pray for humanity when God says, build the ark, I'm going to save you and destroy them. And they often say, maybe they're 50 righteous people. Now, of course, God intimated there are no righteous people. So when you read the story of Noah in its place in chapter 6, 7, 8, I don't think you critique Noah for not praying. But when you get to Avram and his prayers for Sodom and his prayer in the next chapter for Abimelech, someone who prays for humanity, somebody who welcomes the stranger in, all of that is absent. The welcoming of the stranger, the prayer. Noah saves his immediate family, but he can't save anybody else. And now what's interesting is, so you have two foils to Abraham. You have Noah on one hand, very similar, but different. And you have Lot. But you also have the relationship between Lot and Noah. Lot is not Noah. He's also not Abraham. So when thinking about Abraham then, and this is that's our main subject, is Abraham, the Abraham narrative, you have two different foils for Abraham. Because you have Noah on one hand, you have Lot on the other. And you also, when you read the story of Lot, you think about Noah differently because you see Noah as the one who wakes up, who knows, who takes responsibility, who blesses and curses, who assumes God's role, etc. So the interesting thing about this is that in thinking about Avram suddenly, we're thinking about Lot, we're thinking about Noah, we're thinking about Noah in the light of Lot, and Lot in the light of Noah. So it makes this much more complex than just Avram and one other character. It's Abraham and two other characters who themselves are connected to each other in a very profound way. Just to get a sense of the music of the text. I'll tell you a story about this particular shear, this piece of it. Many years ago on the west side of Manhattan, so they had this little thing called the warehouse. And the first couple of years of the warehouse, it was modeled on Rosenzweig's warehouse, I suppose. Anyway, they asked me to speak 
So I gave a shear for, for whatever it was about Yomash. I did about Yomash a lot. And I uh, talked about these two stories of utter destruction, the story of Noah and the story of, of Lot. And the main point of the shear I wanted to make, there's always got to be a point, right? I think. So the main point was that after, after, the, after the Holocaust, after the Shoah, it's very easy to, and I grew up with the survivors completely, but after it, it's easy to see the world as a terrible place. As the Hasidim called Ahmad the Sheikh, a place, of, a place of, of, of dishonesty, a world of dishonesty. It's, it's possible to see the whole world that way because in looking at the world, there's plenty of shikra. But on the other hand, I don't, I think that the stories of the Torah invite us to see very clear eyed about the world, there's plenty of sheker, but there are also points of light. And that the idea of Noah, basically, what Noah represents is after the, the destruction of the world, he's able to make moral distinctions between, between good and evil. And the ability and the imperative to make moral distinctions after the Holocaust struck me as something that we can derive directly from, from the story of Noah. And I had presented the story of Noah in terms of love. Anyway, you know, you're talking to a class and you never know who's in the class, actually. You never know who you speak to. I have, you see the people, you know some of them, but you never know how people take it. You know? Anyway, had a student in the class of blessed memory. Her name was Elga Stolman. Elga Stolman was died many years ago. And she was, she heard that class, she was very taken with the class and she became, got involved in Drisha and she was terrific actually. She died at age 70, a relatively young person. She was a very vibrant person. That's a tremendous loss for the Jewish people. One of my true favorites. In any event, I paid a shiva call after she died and her husband came out and he showed me, uh, he brought out a, a frame with a picture in it. And the picture was, it was the posting for this warehouse. And it had the list of the shiurim and my she was underlined on it, I remember that. He said, she saved this thing and it changed the whole life. And you never know actually, you know, that struck me as, I was a, you never know. So that shear had a, spoke to her. She was coming out of the, she was a survivor, or survivor, parents were survivors, whatever. So you never know, but that actually, is a, I think a very powerful lesson here for my purposes here, which is Abraham. It's when looking at Abraham, you begin to understand the, 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 the interconnectedness of the story. Okay, I'll stop at this point. I wanna pick up with this theme because there's something else which is very interesting here about Lot and Lot's place within the biblical narrative. But before I continue, if people have comments or questions, I saw a couple on the chat and a couple of them I wanna get back to. There was Sigrid's comment about the 10, Lot having 10, 10 people in the family, neighboring praying for 10. I saw a comment about the word Lot, and the question is it related to the word Himolet, Himotanama, to run away, to survive, etc. And I think it, of course, is related. And I would add to that, not only here in this chapter, Himolet, etc., but even in chapter 14, when Abraham saves Lot, how does Abraham know about Lot? He's told, 
ויבוא הפוליט ויגיד לאברהם העברי. There the Torah already plays on פוליט and לוט. Because after all, Abraham saved Sodom solely on account of לוט. It's not his war. Why would he get involved? But no, he feels connected to לוט. So the פוליט is the one. And here, אימולטה נשמה, אימולטה נשמה, אורך אלוהים מלאת. So of course there is a connection. And the question is, what is the connection? That is to say, what does it signify? So I wanted to talk about that. Okay, if anybody has comments or questions now, I'm happy to take them. Can I um, say something? Of course. Uh, so in the story of Noah, I'm talking now from a narrative point of view. It's very interesting that uh, we don't know what the son said. Vayaged lishnei chav b'chutz. Right. So there is no, um, the narrator doesn't go into his mind, what, why did he do what he did, what did he say, but when we come to the story about Lot, we have direct speech exactly what the first daughter said, and then exactly in direct speech what the second daughter said, which is so... Yeah. Apparently, it looks to me that in the first story, Noah is the hero, because he's the one to know, he's the one to speak, and from the sons, we don't have any real information. But when we come to the second story, it's not Lot who is the real hero, uh, negative or positive, but the daughters. Right, that's, that's, have their that's, psyche and their words and so on. I think that's an excellent point. And I, let, me just, let me just embellish that a little bit. I'll give you another example of this, actually. I think in, in terms of the question I raised about the daughters of Lot, uh, daughters of, the daughters of Lot, yeah, I, I think that when you, there, in terms of storytelling, there are, stories are about people, makes them interesting. But sometimes the person is in the story just as you need, the, you need people in the story. You can't have a story without people. But sometimes the person in the story is an actual person. I'll give you a simple example without getting into details of this, but take two parallel stories. The story of Dina in chapter 34 and the story of Amnon and Tamar in the book of Shmuel, Shmuel Bet, chapter 13. Two stories, stories of rape, etc., and all kinds of parallels between them. What's interesting is in the story of Dina, it says Dina went out to see the daughters of the land. She is seen by Hamar, he takes her, molests her, etc. And the entire long story of Dina, we never heard one word about Dina. She never says a word. She just went out, she's captured. And that is the cause of the whole episode of, of, of Shechem and the killing of Shechem, etc., etc. But in the story of Amnon and Tamar, where he rapes his half-sister, but there is different. Because there we have a description of what she does in detail. But we also have a conversation where she tries to talk him out of what he plans to do. And not only that, there's the intimation, she actually tries to fight him off as well. And the point of that is that whereas in the story of Dina, the reader may be impartial. I mean, you feel bad for Dina. She's a victim, obviously, but she's not a person as far as we are concerned. She's a victim. But, but Tamar is not just a victim. She's a real person. And what being a person typically engenders sympathy, not always, mm -hmm. but the way it's presented, it engenders sympathy. So therefore it strikes me at least that the Torah wants us to have a sympathetic reading of the daughters of Lot. Whereas in the mm -hmm. case of 
The other two brothers, yes, their action is good. They don't see their father, they cover their father. Okay, so maybe they're, they're, maybe they're actors in a different sense in terms of what they actually do something, you know, uh, proactively, etc. But in coming back, leaving them out, the, the point about the daughters of Lot, I think is a very important story. The fact that we're told what they're saying and the justification they give, you can question it or not, but at least they're thinking it through from a certain kind of moral standpoint, you know? You can see it not as moral, you see it as selfish as well, but it could be seen as moral. So that's a very important, the way that stories are told and the kind of sympathies that the reader presumably has, they, they, they allow us or force us perhaps to read the story, to read the story differently. Okay, can anybody else have a comment here? Okay, uh, if you do speak up and I will, I just want to get back to, to Lot again. Um, from a related, related to the, the issues that were raised by those, uh, by the question, Sigrid's question, and uh, I think it was Gail who pointed out about the Imolate. So I want to say something about Lot, about the name Lot actually, because we know that names have significance. Avram, exalted father, he is the father. What does Lot mean? So the word Lot appears a few times in the Bible, doesn't appear too many times, but a couple of, I'll mention a couple of times where we have the word Lot. When, when David, David is running away from Shaul, he runs off to the city of priests. He actually causes them all to get killed, but he runs off to the city of priests and he asks the priests for food. And he says, do you have any, any weapons? Do you have a sword? And the priest says, it's a city of priests. We, only, we have no swords in the city. We have one sword. We have Goliath's sword, Luta Basimla. Luta Basimla. So Luta means covered up. It's covered up in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the cloth. It's covered up in the, in the, in the garment. Or Elio Hanavi, who stands on Har Sinai. He's taken to Har Sinai. And he suddenly hears, hears the sounds of silence, actually. He also, in a cloth, he covered himself with a cloth. So Lot means to be covered up. One might say to be, to be isolated. Alata, alata. What? I think the word alata. Alata might be related to that. You know, or something. I think it even, no? Alata. It's, it's low. In Hebrew, I don't know, but you have it in chapter 15, right? You have Alata with the Brief and Abitarim, you have the Eimah, you have etc., the Choshech, and you have the Alata. So it probably is playing on Lot over there. Lot, of course, is not part of the covenant. Lot is out of the picture, but so by contrast, but the point about Lot is, if you think about it, when we encounter Lot in chapter 19, verse 1, he's in the gate of the city. The gate is a public place. And Lot is a public figure. He was, in fact, responsible for the salvation of Sodom altogether. Without Lot, there's no Sodom. Abraham saved Sodom on account of Lot. They should have given him an honorary something about them. Instead, they tried to kill him. But the fact of the matter is, if, if Lot had been able to persuade just his family, just the family, all the members of the family said, we're with you, Lot. We're going to leave the city, terrible place. Then maybe the city could be saved because you would have 10. And God said, if I find 10, in, 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 uh, 10, 10 innocent people or righteous people or whatever, Sadiqim, I will spare everybody. But in point of fact, 
when you read chapter 19, whom does Lot save? He, he, he can't save his sons-in-law because he speaks to the sons-in-law. We are told he has two, at least two sons. They never appear in the story altogether. And of the, of, the, of, the, of the three that remain, the two daughters that he tried to give away, okay, they're the ones that end up sleeping with him. And his wife, who goes, Mrs. Lot, she became a pillar of salt. She looked me acharav. The suggestion then might be that she can't leave Sodom. And I could even see why she wouldn't want to leave Sodom. She has at least three daughters and two sons back there. But in point of fact, she can't leave. Lot tarries by Yitma but he's able to get out. And the wife can't even get out. And the point is, this is someone who has influence on nobody. In fact, at the, the last story, he, the only people that perhaps he had some influence on are the two daughters, and they un, end up sleeping with their father unbeknownst to the father, which is certainly a, a, a reversal of lacking a lack of sensual, sexual consent in the Bible, because typically it's the men who are taking the women. We have very few instances, with the possible exception of Mrs. Potiphar, where the woman tries to force the man into a sexual encounter. It's rare. So the person of Lot, the idea of Lot is a person with no influence. I want to say two things about no influence in, in, in this story and about Lot. First of all, that we can perhaps give a reason why Lot has no influence. And the reason he has no influence based on chapter 19 is very simple. Because when the people of the town surround Lot's house and demand that these two guests be handed off to them, that we know them, Lot says, no, no, my brethren, don't do, don't do bad. I have two daughters, do whatever you want to them, but don't harm my guests. Now, the point is, leaving out the perversity of offering his two daughters, leaving that out. But what Lot might have said is, well, what he probably should have said is, no, it's not, it's not happening. And, it, and then if he wants to, he can walk in front of the house and try to fight the war for himself, if he wants to be a hero. I'm not saying he should say, take me. But what he should say is, you know, I'm the, I'm, I'm, I'm the responsible party, and you're not going to do this. It's not happening on my watch. Come to me, what, whatever may happen. But that's not what he says. What he says is quite the opposite. Take the daughters. And at the time, we pointed out that that's exactly what someone else says in the book of Breshit. That's what Ruven says when the brothers return in chapter 42 from Mitzrayim, and they come back minus one brother, minus brother Shimon, and they come back with all their money, and they find the money. And Yaakov is suspicious, clearly. And the brothers say, well, the only way we can... Uh, get Shimon back is to take Binyamin, the young protected son of Rachel back. And Yaakov says, my son's not going with you. I'm afraid something bad's gonna happen to him. And Jacob says, Yosef Joseph is missing and Shimon is missing. And clearly he's wondering out loud what happened to Joseph and what happened to Shimon. One might say in a normal family, if a, if a, if a, if a child is missing and the other brother comes back with money, you don't assume that brother X sold brother Y for money. But in the family of Jacob, that's a fair assumption because in fact, 
That's what they had intended to do. And according to some commentaries, they in fact did. So Reuven says, listen, Father, the last verse, verses of chapter 42, you can kill my two sons if I don't bring them back. Give them to me. I promise to restore, to restore uh, Shimon. Send Benjamin, everything will be fine. Give them to me. And if not, kill my two sons. Says Jacob, that's not, a, I'm not interested in that. We have no, nothing to talk about. As Rashi points out, my oldest son is a fool. Well, I don't want to kill my grandchildren, but that's another story. But my point is, he doesn't say me. And then someone else speaks up. Chapter 43, one of the great moments in the book of Breshit, Judah speaks up. I can't get into the whole speech of Judah. It's incredibly clever. But, but apart from the cleverness of it, he makes a very simple point. He says two words, Anochi I will take responsibility. I'll be the Arev. You can come to me. If I don't bring him back to you, I will be counted as a sinner over my days. Whatever that means, something terrible. But it's all about me. In other words, I'm responsible. I'm the Ore. And that's the lesson you learned from Tamar's Rebbe in chapter 38 about the Erevon. But leave all that out. And then Judah added a very interesting pasuk in chapter 43. I will read it to you. You get some sense of the complexity of all this. Chapter 43, here's what Yehuda says, right? I'm leaving out some of the other stuff, which is extremely interesting, but not for now. Maybe someday we'll get there. Said the boy with me, I'm responsible. If I don't bring him back, I'm a sinner. Verse number 10. If we had not delayed, we hadn't dawdled, hadn't delayed. The word of the Hitma appears in the Torah exactly three times. The first is chapter 19 by Yitma Lot tarried, Lot dawdled, Lot delayed, Lot was hesitant. The third time is the verse in Exodus. We, we ate matzah. We could not tarry. And I pointed out, had we been able to tarry, we would have tarried. And then Judah says in chapter 43, we're wasting time, Father. We are being mitma It is forbidden mitma The leader doesn't, doesn't you, leaders make decisions. You make a decision, a right decision, a wrong decision. You think about it first, but you make a decision. You don't dawdle. So Judah speaks as a leader. So the contrast is between Judah and Ruvain in chapter 43. But then by extension, the contrast is between Judah and Lot of chapter 19, because Lot is exactly Ruvain. Lot's the one who says, take my two children instead of myself. Such a person who doesn't take responsibility can't influence others. You can never influence somebody else if you don't step forward and take responsibility yourself, how can you have a good influence on someone else? So the point about Lot is that the two pieces of Lot are actually one, which is why can't, he, I see what it says, but there are 10 of them. Yes, but Lot can't influence the 10. He actually can't influence anybody. Not his wife, not the daughters, not the sons-in-law, not the sons. Why? Well, we can speculate why, because 
because he doesn't take responsibility himself. The person that says, yes, 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 if that doesn't work, you can go to so-and-so, how can you expect that person to be a leader? You can't lead that way. So Judah is the leader. Judah becomes the king. Judah gets the blessing of leadership. And Lot, and Lot is out. So that's the point. And now there's something else about Lot's inability, just to come back to the first point, about Lot's inability to have an influence. The, the person with no influence, the ultimate isolated person, as his name suggests, the Lot. And that is coming back to the beginning of chapter 19, the contrast between Abraham and Lot in terms of the hospitality. They're both hospitable. We give Lot a lot of credit. He's connected to Abraham. But there's an interesting distinction between the two of them. Because when it came to Avram's hospitality in chapter, in chapter 18, he rushes to do it himself, but he also runs to Sarah. He says, hurry, Sarah, hurry, Ushi Vasiugot, hurry, bake the cakes, bake whatever it is. And then he runs to the to the to the flock. Bioha Bakar Ratz Abraham, Baikah Ben Bakar Rachvato, Baitelo Hanar. He gives to the Nar, whoever the Nar is, maybe it's a Shmael. And he hurried up to prepare it. He refers presumably to the Nar, or maybe to both. In other words, this is a person that's involving everybody in, in, in his work, his wife and his, and his family. And the emphasis in the Torah in general, in chapter 14, when he goes to war, etc. Everybody's involved. So he sets an example. It's a hundred year old guy running around like crazy to prepare food for total strangers. But the point is the example he sets himself is imitated by everybody in his house. And that's what God said in chapter 18. He has an influence on his own family beyond Beto, the Bayat, a person with influence, person who and he, he does it by example. So that person can influence others. When it comes to loads, no influence whatsoever. And probably that's the shot, I think, in Why a pillar of salt? Well, what is, what is salt? Salt can represent many things, some very positive things, actually. But in the Chumash, in the book of Devarim, it represents something else. The Torah says that in chapter 29 of Devarim, that's the covenant of Avot Moav. And there it speaks about what will happen if people break the covenant, if they worship other gods. And they do it in secret, Vaseta. So God will be very angry. It, says. it speaks about God's anger. And God will destroy the land in such a way that people who come there will be astonished. It will be like the destruction of Sodom and Amorah, the four, four of the cities which God destroyed. And the Torah says about describing the destruction of Sodom, nothing grows there. The idea of melach actually, the idea of salt, right? You sow, you sow this field with salt so nothing will grow, right? Let me find that verse, exactly the verse. It's in chapter 29 of Devarim, it's the covenant of Abu Moab. Let's see if I can find it just very quickly. Um, oh yes, it's even better than I thought. Chapter 29, verse number 22 of Devarim. Gafrit v'melach right? Gafrit v'melach. 
sulfur and salt. Soil, soil devastated by sulfur and salt beyond sowing and producing, no grass growing in it. In other words, nothing good comes of it. And we think about the contrast between chapter 19 and chapter 18, because chapter 18, in the context of Avram's hospitality, of Sarah, of the Nar, of Avram's hospitality, but the message over there is that Sarah miraculously is gonna have this child. So the, the message over there to Sarah, where's Sarah, your wife? Because Abraham knows already, whatever he thinks of it. But the message is for Sarah. And the, the focus is Sarah, that Sarah will be the covenantal partner. She's too old to have children, but it's a miracle. Okay, God can do anything. So the point then is that, the point is that uh, his wife looks back, is a further example of the contrast between chapter uh, between Lot on one hand and Lot's influence or failure to have influence and Avram's on the other. Fine. Now let me stop here for a moment and I want to make yeah, about 10 minutes left and I'll make one last comment about chapter 19. There's probably even more here. There is more here, but I mean, you get the sense of the complexity of the chapter. The artistry here is mind boggling actually. Um, does anybody want to add a point over here and I will try to respond or just a general Comment. I think when we say in Hebrew Yama Melach, that's exactly what we mean. There is no life in that's this right, thing. exactly. And exactly that's how chapter four, that's how chapter 14 begins. Huyama Melach. You have Amek Hasidim Huyam Hamelach, which of course is a clever play on Sodom and Melech, because of the king of Sodom, right? Melech Sodom, Huyama Melach. Nothing good comes from it, basically. But in the case of Lot, you know, it's he is the father, like Abraham, he's the, what might say about Lot, Av Hamon Goyim. He's the father of nations. Amon and Moab are not insignificant nations. And they're significant in terms of the biblical narrative. We have the story of Ruth. We have King David's lineage is, is, is connected to Moab. And Moab and Amon appear in many biblical stories and through the, and through the prophetic writings as well. So Lot is Av Hamon Goyim. But the way it happens is he never gets the opportunity to redeem the act. Now let me just make, let me make one other point about, the point I'm making about knowing. right? The word to know is an interesting word over here in terms of what we've seen so far, because it appeared in the covenant, the Bribin Abitarim, three times, Abraham says to God in chapter 15, how do I know? To which God says, and then in chapter 18, where God alludes to the covenant, God speaks of Abraham as mm. I know him, I choose him, I set him out apart. He's a singular person. And then God said to Abraham, I tell you what's gonna happen in Sodom. I'm hearing terrible things. If what I'm hearing is true, I'll utterly destroy them. I will know what to do. And then when he comes to Sodom, the people surround the house, send out the men, and now at the end of the story, chapter 19, Lot's not knowing, Velo Yada and Velo Yada. So Yada is actually an interesting word to think about in the context of these stories, linking them together. But I wanna make one other point about knowing. And we can't get into the details of the story if we continue with Breshit, which I haven't taught in a long time and I'm enjoying it. Uh, hope we can continue. But there is of course a critical story in the book of Breshit story of Judah and Tamar. 
Now, without getting to all the details of Judah and Tamar, basically, in a nutshell, it's like this. Judah leaves the fold, one might say. He sees a Canaanite woman, takes her, quickly has three children with her. The first two die. And when the first one dies, he instructs son number two to marry the wife of son number one, whose name is Tamar, kind of reverent marriage. He says explicitly, raise up children for your deceased brother. But he's bad. He refuses to consummate that marriage properly, and he's killed. So the first two sons of Judah die. He's left with one son. His name is Shelah. And Judah's afraid to hand over son number three to Tamar. He suspects her in the death of his first two sons. The Torah makes it clear it's not her fault. That God killed them because they're no good. doesn't matter. He suspects. So he sends her away. He refuses to have another reverent marriage, and he sends her back to her father's house, and he says, wait till I contact you, you know? And she's waiting and waiting, and we know. He will never contact her because he, he thinks that she's guilty for the death of his two sons. Why would he contact her? On the other hand, he doesn't free her. He says, you wait around so he, she's still connected to the family. Meanwhile, Judah's own wife dies. And then as soon as his own wife dies, he's looking for consolation, and he sets out to the sheep shearing, which is a time of great joy. Maybe great promiscuity too. And she understands that she dresses up as a harlot, as a prostitute, stands on the road. He sees her and he says, let me come to you. And she says, it's going to cost you. You know, this, this is not, it's a cash only business, you know. So I'll send you something later. She says, no, no, we don't, that's not this business. We don't, we don't, we don't take credit cards here. You know, we, it's cash. What do you want? Your staff, your seal, and your coat. He gives them to her sleep so that she gets pregnant. Fine. Then, and the Torah says that when this happens, he did not know this was his daughter-in-law. He's sleeping with his daughter-in-law. Another forbidden relationship, obviously. Right? All every marriage is forbidden. From her perspective, though, it's a sacred act because she wants to rebuild the family. From his perspective, it's some prostitute on the way to the sheep shearing. Fine. Meanwhile, he wants to get back his staff and his seal, but he can't find them. Nobody can find them. So he um he says, let her, let her, let her keep it. Fine. So meanwhile, he's told a little while later, three months later, his daughter in law, Tamar, is pregnant. And she's actually, in a sense, married to the family because she Swinging around for the third son, who will never be delivered to her. So he says, take her out and let her burn. And as she's being taken out, she sends him these three things, these items to identify him. And she gives him the opportunity to deny it. The father is the possessor of these things. Do you recognize them? And then the Torah says the following verse. She's more righteous than I am. I didn't give it to my son, Shehoth, son number three. And then the Torah says, For Yosef owed with Da'ata, which seems to mean he knew her not again. And that's a very interesting thing, he knew her not again. Knew her not again suggests he once didn't know her. That has a sexual meaning, but the point the Torah emphasized initially, he doesn't know who it is. So what do you mean he knew her not again? He never knew her. So what it seems to mean is that in light of his present confession, he actually is 
he's, 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 he's rectifying what happened earlier. He's redefining that initial act, which is a complete profane act. Doesn't even know who he's sleeping with. But the point is, in retrospect, he turns that act into an act of knowing. Knew or not again, but he once did know her. And the significance for our purposes here is what legitimizes that act from which are born twins, one of which is Peretz and one is Zerach, the forebears of King David and the, the leaders of Israel. Judah's leadership is through Peretz, actually, primarily. But what makes that a kosher act as opposed to an act of incest, it's his daughter-in-law. What is required is, 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 is knowing. What the Torah surprises us with the idea, you can know retroactively. In light of your present confession, we define that act as an act of knowing, and an act of knowing that's done for a purpose. She did it for a purpose, to reconstitute the family, which is why she gives birth to twins, by the way, because she's lost two husbands. Judah's lost two sons. So we know it's going to be twins. One way or the other, they've got to cover both of the children, which is what happens. But my point is, looking back at our story, I said earlier that Lot is a contrast not just to not just to Noah, not just to Abraham, but in contrast to Yehuda, and it's the not knowing. So what 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 the what the Torah doesn't allow for is for the is for the Ammon and Moab births to be totally legitimate because they weren't born from a from a, from a knowledge of both parties. They're born from the knowledge of one of the parties, which is the daughters, which could legitimize an illicit sexual union for the purpose of preserving the world. The Torah does legitimize that in the case of Yibum. But Lot is never given the chance to do that because he never makes that choice. He never makes an actual choice of choosing. The same way he didn't make a choice, he, 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 didn't, he wasn't choosing not to say, I can't go to the mountain lest death overtake me. Let me sort of stay where I am. Lord is not a person who makes choices. Now, later in the Bible, in, in our biblical canon, we have Ruth, who comes from Lot, who's exactly the opposite of Lot, who does make the choice to leave her place. She's Abraham-like, who does make the choice to go to a place where she has no future. Lot has said, Pentid Bokani Harav Hamati, lest I die. And Ruth says, Bashetamuti Amut, when you die, I will die. I know, I know it's probably a dead end for me. Nonetheless, I have to be do what's right. I have to take care of you, be loyal to you. Okay, so that's that's Ruth. That's a, you know, she sort of, she's the the the, the Lot who could be Abraham, who becomes Abraham. In any event, in terms of our chapter here, what I wanted to, uh, to uh, just to complete now is this, I get a better picture of Lot in the chapter, his relationship to Avram, of course, which is primary, and through the lens of Noah adds another dimension. And of course, then the Lot, the inactive Lot, the Lot, the man of no influence, and the striking contrast to Yehuda. And the contrast to Yehuda is not just no influence and leadership, but also in terms of changing the past in terms of present understanding. What Yehuda is able to do in that critical story of Tamar is to redefine the past in light of the present. The biblical narrator never gives Lot that opportunity. Mm -hmm. I'll stop at this point. I want to remind everybody that today at 12, we have a lecture from uh, Rabbi Israel, from Israel. Um, it should prove very interesting. It's the Rappaport Annual Memorial Lecture, usually with the Pesach base to it, always before Pesach. And as Michael said, many other programs that we have before Pesach and of course afterwards.
all of our pre-Pesach learning can be found at drisha.org slash classes. Uh, thanks so much for being here, everyone. We hope to see you in, uh, in about 45 minutes for the Rappaport lecture. And uh, we hope to see you again uh, soon at some of our other pre-Pesach learning. Uh, thanks for being here, everyone.